everyone. Welcome back to Hair of the Werewolf. I'm Lily, and I'm here with Chase. What's up, guys? And we are a paranormal horror podcast that we like talking about everything scary and uh, basically try to scare each other while we drink some beer, wine, rum, everything in between. Sometimes it's coffee and soda. But today, <laughs> today we are both drinking beer. Yeah, today we're both drinking beer. Um, yeah, we got we have Modern Times in front of us. I'm super excited because they just started distributing in the state. This is not like a plug for them. They're not sponsoring. I'm just really excited because I love their beer. Yeah, Modern Times is a great beer. I'm really excited that we get to drink some. Before we go further, we should mention it is super windy while we're recording. We don't think you'll be able to hear it, but just in case you do, we apologize. Uh... There's nothing we can do about it, unfortunately. So there is that. But. Yeah. I mean, it is really windy and it's so ugly out there. It's just all dust since it we live in the desert. Nasty. Yeah, it's nasty. So It's like the LA skyline in the 90s. <sighs> it's, it's not smog. It's just like pollen that's trying to kill me. So that's nice. That's just nice. as deadly for you. Yeah, just as deadly, probably. Um, yeah. So today, oh no, we have some updates, don't we? Yeah, we so last week, to talk we, about. last week we talked about a movie that was free on Amazon streaming called Halloween Party. Mm-hmm. That was released in like 2020, I believe. Uh, we did watch it. And yes. obviously we were talking about it in a non-spoiler capacity. I'm not sure if it was trying to be funny or scary or both or neither. But it definitely wasn't scary. It was not scary. It had some like cool moments where I thought it was going to be really good. And then... Super let down. And then it just kind of like got really cheesy. And then... But then like the fact that they were trying to add this kind of humor that was obviously super funny and like comedic timing kind of stuff. And I'm like, wait, is this supposed to be like a funny horror movie? Because then maybe I could have mentally prepared myself. But then they would switch back to like gore Uh and like actual creepiness and i'm like okay well i don't know what you're doing i never got scared i did laugh a few times though one scene which doesn't ruin anything is they're in a uh sorority not sorority a a frat house house, and they have this giant trash can that's overflowing with trash with this sign on it that says if the trash collapses you have to take it out so this guy's like putting this haunted thing (laughs) on top of it and he's doing it very carefully just to make sure it doesn't fall over and doesn't have to take out the trash it's one of it was it was actually a very special scene. And it was a true like that's really what it was like. Yeah. Like no one wants to take out the trash. So So uh as far as recommending it to people, I think some people might enjoy it, but I would say for most people it's probably a pass. Yeah. This is great if you're maybe a couple drinks in and you just kind of need something mindless in the background that you might be on your phone at the same time. It'll probably fit the bill. <laughs> so you're barely paying attention. But if you commit to this movie, especially the let down scary scenes, yeah. uh, you'll probably have a really disappointing time. I agree. That's definitely, definitely true. Um... Let's see. In other news, mm-hmm. I have—I don't have a story, sorry, but like right now, I want to tell you something that happened to me uh, last week. Hold on, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> while we were recording, or no, no, sorry, while I was editing. Was I asleep? No. Well, yes. So what happened was um, last week on Friday when we recorded, I immediately started editing, as you know. Sure. But I just took my laptop and instead of on my computer, like on my desktop, I went into the living room where you were hanging out as well. And uh, you were out there for a while. And then you went to bed like around, what, 2.30, 3, I think. And I was still up like <laughs> well into the wee morning. But anyway, sometime around 4 o'clock, I got like this super strong feeling that I was being watched. Mm. And I don't get that a whole lot, mostly because I'm not really observant of my surroundings. So even if I am being watched, I'm just like, I don't know. But I mean, like, 
crazy amount. And my eyes immediately went out towards the window that was next to, which is like right behind the couch. Okay. But it's like where you were sitting. So like on your side. Yeah. And there was actually like a slit open, like a pretty sizable gap between like the window and the shade was supposed to, you know, close, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't. So anyway, (laughs) I'm like staring at it and like freaking out. But normally I'm just too lazy to do it. This isn't the first time that we don't know how to close our blinds and they're just like giant gaps everywhere. But but for some reason, this time I'm like, oh, my God. And so I immediately, like, reach over and close it. And I'm just like, it still feels like someone's out there. Did you peek out? Hell no. I couldn't. Uh. But I couldn't because it was, like, dark and there was light inside. And it was just, like, pitch black out there. You immediately turn off all the lights and then you come get me and I'll go look. <laughs> you were asleep. So I couldn't. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to lie when I say this. I really was a little paralyzed just sitting there. And it took actual courage for me to like get up and run into the office so then when I did that um I finally did I was like I'm just gonna get up and run and I did and then I was like f like I'm really thirsty I was gonna go get some water (laughs) so I was just like in the office freaking miserable and but I'm not gonna lie as soon as I went in when I went into the office I was totally at ease like my mood shifted completely so interesting I just think something was going on and it I could have been someone staring at you through the window. It's so our neighborhood hobo or something. Creepy. <laughs> oh, good, just him. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. I was I was in the computer room uh, for a while, and then eventually I got too thirsty, and I'm like, whatever, just let him watch me then, because I just needed to get water. But I'm not gonna lie when I say this. I usually don't get these kind of feelings, and then when I did, I'm like, what is happening? So that's my story. <laughs> so why didn't you tell me about this last week? Oh, because I wanted to tell you today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could have like gone outside the next day to see if it looked like, you know, there were footprints in the gravel outside if someone was watching or anything. There was, you would not have been able to see anything. I guarantee it. There's no <laughs> dirt or like mud or anything to leave tracks. Yeah, she's like, yeah, Chase, your tracking skills are <laughs> atrocious. Who has tracking skills in the city? I don't know. Don't I have to like... Hold up some grass and drop it and see where the wind blows it, and then I can tell if it and was like, to, like if it was like <laughs> a forty or fifty year old male or female or you know. You're supposed to sniff the dirt. I heard so taste it. Yeah, you got to taste it a little bit, and then you'll know. Yeah, we get our we get the outside of our house sprayed, so I'm not tasting <laughs> shit out there. I just want you to know. Mmm, yeah. roaches. <laughs> I may be an adult, but I, I'd still be worried I'd get birth defects from that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope you don't go into labor anytime soon. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, that was my update on creepiness that has happened to me. Fun times. Yeah. So I didn't experience anything. I was sleeping. I know. My hero. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so anyway. what? So, so today's working a little differently than it our normal is. episodes. We are still telling stories, but this time... Me, Chase, has a big story. Mm-hmm. Instead of Lily going first and then me or something like that, it's me with a really big story today. Exactly. And I'm also going to do it a little differently than I normally do. Usually I do like a lot of UFO stuff and I inject a lot of skepticism. Not today. Not being skeptical. Just nothing but good old fashioned scary stories. And I'm here to criticize, laugh, and cry. So for those of you that missed last week's episode, <laughs> I did a little story about the strange lights spotted by the crews of the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria 
the night before they made landfall in the New World back in 1492. Mm -hmm. I use that story as an introduction to today's episode because some consider it the first recorded incident of strangeness in the infamous Bermuda Triangle. (laughs) So today we are going hardcore on Bermuda Triangle for this installment of Tropical Terrors. Perfect. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid... Me and my friends were obsessed with the Bermuda Triangle. I think every kid in the 90s should have been. Right? It's just one of those things. Like, for my tiny little mind, it was like (laughs) the same thing as, like, volcanoes, the crystal caves, and even, like, the Challenger Deep. They're, like, these things that we're just obsessed with. Yeah. Like, I can't say things like quicksand because those are just little things, but, like, volcanoes, I need to see. We all had an irrational fear of quicksand. We're, like guaranteed this will happen to me at some point. But I mean, if my parents are big in PBS, if like Nova came on and they were talking about volcanologists and stuff, I was like, oh, I'm attached to this. <laughs> sure. But anyway, so today, for those of you who know the Bermuda Triangle and are fascinated by it, I hope you enjoy the stories. If you've never heard of it, well, get ready because it's a wild ride. Here's a rundown of the basics to, to okay. explain for people who don't know. Sometimes referred to as the Devil's Triangle, the Bermuda <laughs> Triangle is a large region in the Northern Atlantic that has become synonymous with mysterious incidents. These include the disappearances of boats, planes, and people, as well as encounters with ghosts, aliens, UFOs, and even bizarre and unpredictable phenomena such as electrical disturbances, compass malfunctions, ball lightning, and even time dilation, if everyone's to be believed. Well-trained and experienced pilots and ship captains have been documented as having experienced bizarre occurrences while traveling through the Triangle. Experiences they have not had in any of their other travels elsewhere in the world. Meaning they specifically note that the Bermuda Triangle was different. Or the zone of silence. I mean, I'm just... Or the zone of silence. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I just got to bring that back because obviously... (laughs) <laughs> so we've got all these zones we need to go to. One's we gotta, z- we gotta the be in the zones. Yeah. <laughs> one is the tortilla chip zone of silence, and the other one is just the Bermuda Triangle. Exactly. So the exact location of the Bermuda Triangle is tricky. The main reason it's tricky is its borders aren't like specifically defined. It's not like international borders. Like this is the Bermuda Triangle. So different people kind of believe it's in different areas. Oh, okay. But the estimates range from as little as only 500,000 kilometers squared to over 4 million kilometers squared. That's a huge discrepancy. An article in 1964 called The Deadly Bermuda Triangle by Vincent Gaddis attempted to define the specific boundaries with the triangle's vertices being Miami, Bermuda, and San Juan, Puerto Rico. Yeah. That is by most people. That's what I've The pretty seen. defined triangle limits. Some right. people say it's much larger. Some people say it's smaller. But I'd say the vast majority of people, they're like, this is the Bermuda Triangle. Heck yeah. But despite this, we do need to acknowledge that some of these stories that the people attribute to the Bermuda Triangle are outside of this specific thing. But mm-hmm. people say it's all the same. Documentation of paranormal events in the Triangle arguably go back over 500 years, as I detailed in last week's coverage of the Columbus incident. But the idea that there was a specific region that was prone to mysterious happenings was first committed to print recently in 1950, when Edward Van Winkle Jones, he published an article on it in the Miami Herald calling into question the strange number of incidents occurring in kind of that region. Okay. But... Two years later, the concept of it being triangular in nature was introduced by George Sand in an article published in Fate magazine. 
ever since then, decades have gone by, the idea has taken off. And now everyone is very familiar with the idea of the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. So these are pretty much the three people who kind of made what the Bermuda Triangle this known, specified thing. Like they try to triangulate it's where it is. Like, where are these occurrences happening and how do we study these? Or exactly. Where, where are the regions and then the triangle? Yeah. But as you can see, it kind of starts off as just like hearsay and speak as opposed to like these scientific boundaries defined by measurable things. Yeah, this you got to measure if it's science. You got to like have something to base it on. If it's non-millimeters, it's not science. <laughs> I say as most of the stuff I have in here are going to be in feet and miles, just so you know. Nice. Now I understand. <laughs> um... In the last half of the 20th century, over 100 high-profile cases of boats and aircraft have been documented as having gone missing while traveling through the Bermuda Triangle. In most of these disappearances, no traces were ever found. No wreckage, no bodies, and often without radio transmissions or an SOS being sent. More often than not, there is no definitive answer as to what occurred. The best way to demonstrate the compelling nature of these events is to discuss some of those high-profile cases in detail, and the particularly bizarre circumstances surrounding them. Ooh, now we're getting to it. So now I'm gonna, I have a whole bunch of incidents. Most of these are gonna be in roughly chronological order, so we're going way back to some of the first. Okay. The first story takes place a little further out than what most people consider the Bermuda Triangle. It mm -hmm. is often associated with the Bermuda Triangle, but it's a little further past those common boundaries. In the winter of 1872, the Mary Celeste set sail from New York on its way to Genoa, Italy. The ship's payload was a massive shipment of raw alcohol. I couldn't find out if that meant, like, wood grain alcohol, like, for industrial purposes, or if it mm. meant, like, just booze, Drinking. like, whiskey yeah. or something. I couldn't find out. <laughs> but it set sail with ten people on board, eight of which were crew. The ship never made its destination. On yeah. December of, of uh, 1872, the ship was found near the Azores Islands. So that was, would have made it within like a month. Oh, okay. I didn't catch the first month. It was. I just said uh, winter, but I think I remember reading it was like November-ish sometime. It was, okay. a little, it was a little hazy. But the ship was found near the Azores Islands. Its sails were partially deployed. Upon investigation, no one was found aboard the ship. Ooh. Further investigation found that nine of the barrels on board were empty. And the lifeboat was missing. Oh. And a lone sword was found on the deck of the ship. No evidence of attack or piracy was ever found, though. Oh, okay. And the valuables on board were untouched. So definitely, that would be like the worst pirate or no pirates. Right? I mean. But also, the boat had no problems. Like, it was good to functioning. sail. Yeah, it wasn't like the boat had, like, tipped over or was taking on water. Boat was fine. People were missing. They left... They're valuables, mm. and just a boat is gone. Abduction. So they have no idea why the crew abandoned ship. And the lifeboat and the crew have never been found. The ship was just left. That's sad. Adrift. Although, okay, so definitely the lifeboat missing is a clue. Is the only one that would suggest that they all left, but Or at why? least somebody left. Somebody, maybe. But yeah, like, why would it be missing? And also one barrel, like... They said they said several barrels were empty. Oh, several. Now, were they barrels of alcohol? Were they barrels of food? I don't know. Once oh, again, I couldn't find sure. specifics. I mean, maybe they just got really damn drunk. And another and th took a ride on the lifeboat. Well, and another thought I had is, what if these barrels, like, what if they hit choppy water and like some of these barrels like 
fell over and leaked. If you have a massive amount of alcohol, couldn't that smell be so crazy you have to like jump overboard because like... If it's raw alcohol? I mean, yeah. I mean, you and me, if we, even if it's just like isopropyl alcohol, if it's too strong, it can make us lightheaded and fall over if from spraying oh, stuff. Oh, I didn't think of that. So that, that wasn't suggested. That's a me theory. I'm like wondering... Huh. But maybe they were abducted. And then yeah. the aliens, <laughs> aliens were like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we just got rid of this boat? So then people are like, what? <laughs> I mean, sure. Either one. So, ready for another incident? Yes, very much so. All right. So, uh, almost a decade later, in 1881, a British ship known as the Ellen Austin set sail from New York to London. It's kind of weird because the Bermuda Triangle is pretty far south. From where I would consider a direct line from yeah. New York to London is, however, they did pass down there. Uh, they passed through the northern section of the Bermuda Triangle near Bermuda itself mm-hmm. in an area called the Saragossa Sea, and they came across a derelict schooner. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't say the word schooner without thinking of mall rats. When the guy oh, keeps right. trying to see the mind's eye thing, the invisible image, yeah, and then the kids like. Uh, it's a schooner. And he goes, you dumb bastard. It's a boat. He said, a schooner is a boat. And I was like, I think that was the first time I ever knew that a schooner was a boat. Because I, I saw it when I was like 12. I think we were all educated that day. What is, <laughs> who knew what a schooner was? No right? way. Well, anyway, they come across a derelict schooner. Okay. The captain, who feared it might be a trap, exercised extreme caution and observed the ship for several days before approaching. I mean, that's that's being cautious. Wow. When they finally boarded, they found the ship was also abandoned, with no sign of the crew. Yet the ship was fully stocked with supplies and cargo. And where was the ship found? Near Bermuda. So, okay, so then it did travel south. Yeah, yeah, they they traveled south on their way to London. They passed through the northern part of the Bermuda Triangle, and they found it in the Bermuda Triangle. Ah, okay. So, fully stocked with supplies and cargo, and no one's on board. Mm -hmm. And the captain decided, well, you know, this is worth a lot. So he's (laughs) like, we're gonna bring this ship back to shore. So he placed some of his best crew on that boat to bring it in. Several days without incident later, a sudden localized, tiny localized storm hit both ships and they were separated. Mm. They kept trying, so the original ship kept trying to find it and they couldn't. And then a couple days later, they finally spotted the ship again in the distance. With some serious effort, they were able to catch up to it, but it was difficult. Once they got up to the- Are you saying the, the schooner caught up to the big ship? No, the original ship caught up to the schooner. schooner. So they, they found an empty schooner, put people on it, sailed together. No, no, no I know, but you're saying ship for each one and I just need to know which one's the schooner. Sorry. Okay, but I got it now. All right, so I'm going to say they caught up to the schooner. Okay, got it. I'll, I'll define it as schooner now because that's a good point. I need to be specific. So they finally caught up to the schooner. Okay. When they got to it, they noticed that it was drifting aimlessly as well. Mm. And upon reboarding, the new crew was missing too. Oh, man. So they put a new crew on there, and now they're gone as well. No sign of why either. No issues with the boat. No nothing. Their new crew, they just lost him. So, okay. That is really weird because if it was a bad storm... Could they just fly off? I mean, I don't know how boats work. To but an it, but entire crew? Uh, yeah, you're right. It is very rare. But was the storm super violent, abnormally violent? Who knows? I don't know. No, that's true. But losing an entire crew twice, you're like, what's going on with this boat? Because it seems seaworthy. You know, you'd think if the boat had a huge problem in the storm, they would have noticed it, you know, like sunk or something Especially crazy. like experience. Like you said, he put his best crew on there. Yeah, he put, the, the article said a prize crew, meaning good oh, people. Oh, well. So. That does make it mysterious. 
So you find an empty boat, put some people on it, and then they go missing. You're like, well, this boat seems pretty <laughs> shitty. I'd say the boat is cursed. Now, at this point, the I read like three articles on this, and there was differing ideas. One of the articles said he tried a third time to bring the boat in, and the same thing happened. But the other two said, at this point, he cut his losses and sailed away. Mm-hmm. I think he probably would have sailed away. You lose that many crew, you're you're saying, I can't do this. Yeah, no way. Because at this point, you're like, I don't know what's wrong with this boat anymore. And maybe they're superstitious. We're talking the 1800s. Superstition would have still been very strong at the People time. People are superstitious now. Like that one No, have... absolutely. But sailors um, were infamously superstitious during the age of sail. Sure. So. Um, Aren't they still? Or is that just something that. I think they might still be, but I mean. To a when, certain degree. Whenever... I, I'm not talking about like the navy or anything but i'm talking about maybe just people who sail recreationally you might be right i don't know that's actually a really good question i don't really know i kind of have a fascination with that era like sailboats and everything like this Mm -hmm. i love it you know the twenty thousand leagues under the sea all that stuff really excites me so when i watch movies about realistic movies like master and commander or fantasy movies they always portray sailors as just being super super superstitious yeah i just i guess i just put them in the same category the way like people in sports are still super like bowlers Bowler, baseball players. I mean, do you ever see them go up to a mound and they do a weird thing? Uh And you're like, you either have Tourette's or you're just really superstitious. It's their thing. Yeah, and they do it every single time. Yeah, I used to. I used for those those of you who don't know, I used to be a cook at a bowling alley. Had to make all those, you know, fries, wings, all that stuff people liked. And I realized how superstitious bowlers were because orders would come in very specifically with how to make things. Like they would say, I want like. Ten mm. wings, three with sauce, <laughs> three without, three here, but they have to be arranged on the plate this way. Don't let celery touch these. Like, all these weird things. And I asked, because I was like, what's up with these weird orders? And they said, oh, they're superstitious. And if you do it wrong... They will take it they're, back. Yeah, they'll psych themselves out. They'll throw the game. They'll go up to the owners and complain and try to get money back for their membership fee saying, like, you guys didn't make it right. And I'm like, whoa, this is tough. So That's so intense. That was hard. That was hard. But it's um, all mental. I mean, obviously. It's all so, anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But so at this point, that boat was never seen again, and no one knows whatever happened to the crew. That was just. That's just sad. That was that. Yeah. Next up, we have the USS Cyclops, which I just want to take a moment <laughs> to talk about how awesome that name is. Yeah, it's a pretty cool name. I'm so used to all the modern names. They're they're named after like presidents and. No one wants to, I would rather ride the Cyclops than the Kennedy. Yeah, I'd rather be in like the USS Cyclops than the USS Kennedy or the USS Albuquerque. Like I love <laughs> I love my city, but like I don't Okay, I gotta boat. ride the Albuquerque. I'm like, how random? We're not even near an ocean. <laughs> yeah, this boat has a meth problem, sir. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> so anyway, the USS Cyclops was a massive cargo ship built for the US Navy in 1910. On March 4th, 1918, my birthday, not 1918, but March 4th. Oh my God. By the way, this isn't the, this isn't going to be the only time I mention March 4th today. Ooh, is coincidence? Apparently, maybe I was born to go to the Bermuda Triangle. I'm being called home. Okay, well, remind me not to go with you. <laughs> so on March 4th, 1918, it departed Barbados en route to Baltimore, carrying a full load of manganese ore. Inspection before departing confirmed that they had a cracked cylinder in the engine, full disclosure. Mm. But it was still recommended that it continue to the United States before any repairs were done because it was still seaworthy. The Cyclops never made it to Baltimore, though. Mm. No wreckage or sign of the ship has ever been found. More disturbingly was that no distress signal was ever sent from the USS Cyclops, and no one aboard responded to the numerous radio calls from ships in the nearby area. 
the ship carried 306 crew Holy. and passengers and is considered the largest loss of life in naval history not related to active combat. Oh, sure. 306 people. Damn. Like, you'd think 306 people of that 306, someone would have sent a distress signal or found some way to respond to the, gotten to the radio operation room, and there something. Was, and did you mention this? Did, was there a record of, like, weather, bad weather or anything? Any any mention of that? Actually, actually, there is mention of that. Mm-hmm. Um, some reports stated that it was overloaded with cargo, possibly leading to issues were it to encounter bad weather. But it did not encounter bad weather. <gasps> Ooh. One theory is that it was sunk by a German ship. This is oh. 1918. This uh, the w- World, World War, War I, One ended that year, but yeah. not for like six more months. Sure. So uh, they said maybe it was shot down because the manganese ore they were using is actually used to build munitions. Okay. However, the German military has denied any involvement in the disappearance of the USS Cyclops, which might have made sense during the war to like maybe not cause retaliation, but in a hundred years since, no information because they would have documented that they had They would have had it It would have come out by then. It would have been considered because it was actually a naval ship it wouldn't have been a war crime or anything. So I mean, you're right. Yeah. Uh, there was no. There's no reason for them to deny it. There really not isn't. This uh, long, not this Not I guess. since the war. Huh. Yeah. So that's interesting. So this boat, it was a very specific model. Two of its sister ships, which were built almost the exact same, were both lost in World War II. Hmm. Both of which were reported to have been overloaded with cargo. As you, if you so remember, that's I now said, sounding like it's just not a very good ship. It could have had a structural failure. However, yeah. it also should be noted that both those ships lasted another twenty-five years, and it is incredibly likely that in those hmm. twenty-five years they were both at some point overloaded. So, just assuming it was overloaded, those could be coincidences, or or they could actually be causation. We don't yeah, know. That's true. So. Whether or not it was a structural failure, possibly, maybe not. But the Navy launched an official investigation, and their findings stated, quote, many theories have been advanced, but none that satisfactorily accounts for all for her disappearance, end quote. Mm. So the Navy said, we don't know. Sure. And, you know, the military's pretty good at just saying, we're satisfied that it was overloaded. Boom. But, like, they didn't <laughs> this time. All right. Now... Ready for another story? Yes. All right. Tell me. They keep rolling today. (laughs) Now, in a direct contrast to the awesome names like the USS Cyclops, we have the Carol A. Deering. Fun. I mean, I don't think that's a good name for a boat. That sounds like, (laughs) this is my wife, Carol A. Deering. Not like... And I'm going to ride her. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. Like, if I I was be like, man, is this boat like for a yacht club or something? Yeah. It's pretty boring. I feel like everyone's wearing white sweaters now, and I don't like it. (laughs) To bring things full circle, it was a large five-masted commercial schooner. Mm Mm-hmm. Another schooner. Yeah. This one was built in 1919. Uh, when it comes to the Bermuda Triangle, this is one of the stories that does get talked about the most. People seem to really like this one. In the months leading up to the incident, the ship was overcome with what can only be described as drama. <laughs> oh, God. With the originally appointed captain falling ill and being replaced uh. days before the voyage, numerous crew discipline issues throughout the entire voyages, as well as having the first mate arrested for drunkenness in Barbados, and the captain had to bail him out. Wow. In January of 1920, the ship set sail from Barbados to Hampton Roads, Virginia. 
Weeks later, after passing through the triangle, the ship was allegedly spotted off the coast of North Carolina by a lightship ran by a Captain Jacobson. Okay. The lightship was hailed by the Carol A. Deering. So the, the ship that you know went missing oh. hailed the lightship. Yeah. The man on the Deering who communicated with Captain Jacobson on the lightship was not the captain of the Deering. The man on the Deering didn't match the description of any of the crew either. What? He was allegedly tall, thin, had red hair, and a foreign accent. Hell no. He told the lightship that they had lost its anchors and that the company that owned the ship should be notified. Captain Jacobson also noted that the crew was acting strangely, wandering aimlessly on the quarterdeck, an area usually off limits to the crew, except for the captain. What? This would be the last communication with anyone on board the Deering. Days later, the ship was spotted by the Coast Guard. It had run aground on the Diamond Shoals, an area that has been dubbed the Graveyard of the Atlantic, hmm. due to it being infamous for a large number of shipwrecks. When, when rescuers boarded the ship, they found it had been abandoned. The crew's personal effects, ship's log, navigation equipment, and lifeboats were all missing. There was also significant damage to the ship's rudder, steering wheel, and other important structures. They also found that two red lights in the rigging had been lit, which is a known distress signal at the time. Oh, okay. The ship was deemed unsalvageable and was destroyed by dynamite by the Coast Guard on March 4th. Uh, a birthday again! <laughs> the ship was the subject to a mass investigation, which ended without any official cause found. One thing of note was that the reported hurricanes in the vicinity should not have affected the Deering as it should have been far enough away from the storm. Yeah. Modern explanations have ranged wildly from piracy to involvement in illegal rum running. One theory is that another boat, the steamer vessel Hewitt, was in the area at the time of the ship's issues. The Hewitt was also lost at sea not long after. Some suggest that survivors of the Deering may have been saved by the Hewitt only to perish when that vessel sunk as well. Oh, damn. Could you imagine? <laughs> That's bad luck. You're like, That's all right. Just, it's like that one guy. The world's trying to tell me something. Uh, that survived the Titanic, and then he like rode another one, and then that sunk too. Mm -hmm. I forgot his name, but that happened to him. I know exactly. And yeah. he totally lived both, and he's like, suck it. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be on boats anymore, yeah, yo. I should probably not kill people with my presence. So I think the creepiest thing about this one was that when they did communicate, everyone was acting weird, and the guy who talked to him wasn't like the captain or the and crew. And he like... I feel like, okay, so could it have been, like, mutiny, maybe? And then everyone's acting really weird because they're like, how do we explain this? We're just going to um, do something about that. And then with the other boats, it could have been a takeover. But were they on the same side? Whose boats were who? Like, who was a Hewitt? Uh, I think the Hewitt was an American steamer ship. And so was the other one? Mm -hmm. The oh, okay. Well, then I don't know. So, I mean, it could have been pirates took it over and they need, They felt like if they were spotted, like we should communicate with them so they don't like call in the Coast Guard or something like that. So if it was... And they ran they ran into issues with the boat after the piracy. and. But if they were both American ships and then they found one foreigner that wasn't American, how did that happen? What do you mean? Didn't you say that the... The guy who was on the ship that when, when, the, when the light boat found it spoke in a foreign accent and didn't match a description of anyone on the crew. So it would have been from a pirate vessel, possibly. Oh, okay. So we're still that thinking that, the too. And, yeah, that was just an idea. It was just a theory. But then why would the crew not say anything now that they're safe on their soil? Unless all the crew was Part pirates. of it. Ooh. Yeah. <gasps> oh, my God. And they just, like, put on their sailor uniforms? Yeah. Well, I mean, they probably have sailor uniforms of their own. But pirates don't wear traditional pirate garb. No, no, no. I know. <laughs> but, like, I guess if you have killed previous boats and then taken their uniforms to like use in 
in other incidents. Very possibly. And that um, would make sense why they didn't know the rules that usually they don't wander in areas uh, that only captains would but, be in. But also outside of military, navy ships, you know, a, most sailors kind of just wear whatever clothes. Oh, Sometimes they know. wear a lot of similar clothes because those clothes make sense for being out on the water. Like they'll wear the same kinds of hats because they're like warm and stuff. But, you know, if you go on a boat these days, as long as you're not on a board like a naval ship, mm-hmm. people are just going to be wearing normal clothes for the most part. I guess you're right. So it might have been hard to do it. And it was a light boat too, suggesting it was probably out at night because it's like a mobile lighthouse, like a tiny little lighthouse. Yeah. So at night it might have been harder to tell. So That's I don't know. That's true. Interesting. It's still really creepy though. It's, it, this one's really creepy because like <laughs> it was seen and it was in a bad way. And then the next time it was seen, it was completely banned. And no one... No one from the original ship has been found again. So, like, the assumption is they're all dead. And who yeah. were these people? Were they, were they like, rum runners who, like, once they got close enough to the shore, they, like, got on the boats and, like, vamoosed and left it to die? I mean, yeah. who knows? Because the ship was messed up. So messed up, they're like, we're going to blow this up. Like, we're, we just got to hit this with dynamite. Wow. Yeah. Fun. So not all seafaring disasters are large in scale, though. I, a lot of these ones we're talking about are huge boats. Like, yeah. some of them were small but notable. On December 22nd, 1967, a small cabin cruiser went missing off the coast of Miami. With only two members on board, the boat was named the Witchcraft, which is funny considering one of the people on board was a preacher. (laughs) Um, On that night, they sent a call to the Coast Guard. In the call, Captain Dan Barak, Barak, I think, uh, if I'm pronouncing right, stated that the boat had hit something. He also mentioned that no major damage had occurred, but that he would need help being towed to the shore. Mm-hmm. The Coast Guard immediately sent out help, which arrived only 19 minutes after the call. And How- where was this? Off the coast of what? Miami. Miami, okay. So the Coast Guard got there 19 minutes. That's no time at all. Sure. That's super quick. Reasonable. Uh When they reached the area, nothing could be found. Mm. There were no traces of a boat the crew, anything. They surveyed an area hundreds of miles around the reported location and still found nothing. What makes this even more disturbing is that the witchcraft was an incredibly safety forward design at the time. Mm. It had numerous fail safes for keeping it afloat even if it were completely flooded with water, as well as having all the expected things like life jackets, lifeboats, flares, etc. And this is a small boat, two people, no flares were sent, no lifeboats were used, mm-hmm. no life jackets. And in 19 minutes, you can wade for 19 minutes. Right. You would be in the, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess in you could area. say sharks, but at the same time, maybe you'd see blood and you'd still see like a life jacket or something. But absolutely nothing was found. 19 minutes after. That is pretty creepy. That one's really creepy. I saw this picture where they talked about the boat had this huge flotation thing in the middle of it that it could be completely flooded and the top of the boat will still be above the water. It'll just be hanging, pointing out like... So it should still... It was meant to never sink. Ooh, that's pretty cool. I saw the documentation on the BuzzFeed Unsolved and Brian (laughs) Bergara said, it's unsinkable. And then Shane's like, oh, you know, the last boat they said was unsinkable. (laughs) And I thought that was pretty clever. So, you know, good on him for saying that. But yeah, Yeah. you got to be careful when you say the boat can't sink or the plane can't crash because they absolutely can. Well, we've heard that before. But there's there's nothing about this that it should have disappeared in 19 minutes. Like if it had been out there for days, sure, you could think of all crazy things. But in 19 minutes... I mean, a boat with even moderate safety features shouldn't sink that quick in most situations. Hopefully, I don't know. Especially because this wasn't stormy. It was, it was a normal day. What was the distress about? 
he said he had hit something, but that but that's it. But but he said it wasn't catastrophic. But he need help getting towed to shore. He probably hit a bit of reef or a raised area. Maybe he was scraping and he was like, "I need just to not f up my boat more." Exactly. Or something. Yeah. But even then, if he was taking on water, the boat shouldn't have sank. Hmm. And so everything about this one, this one to me is way more interesting than um, the Deering boat because I'm like, 19 minutes? No, no way. <laughs> All right. So, real quick, for people who haven't heard all of our episodes, I'm going to briefly recap something I talked about in a previous episode because it totally took place in the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, what was it? If you remember, a few episodes ago, I talked about the lighthouse on Great Isaac K. Oh, yes. So, I'm not going to redo the whole story. Uh, if, you, if you're interested, you should go back and listen to that episode. But this is an, a small island. It's so incredibly small. Like, the only thing on the island is a lighthouse and a couple buildings that are meant to support, support. the lighthouse. Well, it is known to have two ghosts that haunt it, one of a little boy who died in a shipwreck on the island, and one of a dead mother who's looking for her child, different child, who was the only survivor of a different shipwreck. They're both claimed to have been seen around the island, and the woman can be heard crying at night. And in 1969, the two people who were watching the lighthouse, the the caretakers of the lighthouse, vanished without a trace and were never seen from again. And so that was a great story. If, if you haven't heard it, go check out oh, yeah, that episode. Oh, yeah, it's got other stuff on it, like, yeah. for sure. But that was totally a Bermuda Triangle incident that was not on a boat or a plane or anything, but it's ghosts it's within the and region. it's people and it's on an island, and I totally want to go to this island. I mean, technically it does have two shipwrecks in the story. Otherwise, where'd the ghosts come from? Uh, that's true. Yeah. It's true, but the, the, the island didn't sink. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be a mystery. Yeah. Like Atlantis. Okay, by the way, I'm not going to go into it, but some of the crazy theories about the Bermuda Triangle is that Atlantis, this super technological cities below it, I pay absolutely no attention to those kinds of theories. Because they're so ridiculous. But anyway, there's a whole bunch of people who believe that kind of stuff. We're not going there. Well, I did not know that those people existed. So good (laughs) to know. Thank you. All right. So that was, so as dangerous as the waters in the Bermuda Triangle are, the skies are just as dangerous. Mm-hmm. So in a minute, I think we should take a quick break because I want another beer. Ooh, yes. When we come back, I'm going to tell you about all the plane issues that have occurred in the region. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll see you in a bit. Welcome back, everyone. We have our beers, and I am so excited to finally hear the rest of the stories. So we're we're now getting into the plane-related stories of the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> I'm like, I got our beers as quickly as possible, and I'm like, I'm ready. So we did a bunch of boats. We even did an island. But now it's the flying things. <laughs> November 3rd, 1978 seemed like an ideal day for a flight. Mm. The weather was perfect with clear skies, warm temperatures, and no heavy winds. Irving Rivers, an experienced pilot for Eastern Caribbean Airways, took a flight from St. Croix to St. Thomas, both of which are in the U.S. Virgin Islands, in a tiny plane named the Piper Navajo, which actually is a pretty cool name. This is a tiny dual propeller plane, even smaller than the one you and me actually took in New York a few years back. Yeah, so it's smaller tiny, than that. tiny thing was yeah. my nightmare. This one could probably hold, I couldn't tell for sure, I bet it could hold like eight or ten people. It's very small. But it had two propellers, one on each wing. So uh, he was the only person on board at the time. But the goal was to pick up passengers in St. Thomas. So he was going to go pick up passengers to take them Mm -hmm. somewhere. 
As the plane approached to within one mile of St. Thomas Airport, it was cleared for landing from control. The controller even managed to spot the plane's blinking lights and was clearly visible on the radar. But then all of a sudden, the plane vanished. It was nowhere to be seen, and it dropped off the radar. What? The plane was never seen again. Despite efforts to locate the wreckage, neither the plane nor the pilot were ever found again. It was visible from the airport. So, And it disappeared. In theory, if they were going to estimate where it would have crashed... They would have looked in the surrounding area. They knew the direction. They knew everything. It would have been near the coast where the water is more shallow, wouldn't have been super deep, couldn't find it. Could they have seen it turn around or was it like, I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. Because wouldn't it have been on on the radar by that point? If it was on the radar, it wouldn't just, it dropped off the radar. They didn't see it just move out of the radar's range. It just stopped showing up on the radar. (gasps) That's which so means, creepy. which either means it literally disappeared or it got too low. Because one way to avoid sure. the radar is to get too low or drive yeah. like or fly like a stealth bomber, which it wasn't. <laughs> um, of course. So he could have gotten too low or he crashed, but they didn't see anything. No crash. Just couldn't find it. Could Nothing. Not... <gasps> Just disappeared. Ew. Oh yeah, my God. this one messes me up a little bit because <laughs> they saw him. Weather was amazing. Just disappeared. Couldn't find the crash. Couldn't find nothing. There was no nothing. distress signals, nothing. Nothing. He was clear for landing. Everything was great. He was close. Just Whoa. disappeared. Disappeared everywhere. Yeah. That's messed Hopefully up. Hopefully no one has to fly soon. <laughs> so shitty. Right? In December of 1948, a Douglas DC-3 plane was flying from Puerto Rico to Miami, Florida, carrying 32 people, three of which were crew. Mm. The weather was good and visibility was high. Notice the trend here. On a lot of these, the weather is pretty damn Especially good. Especially with the with the planes. Yeah. yeah. During the flight, everything was going fine. And the plane was 700 miles from Miami. And the plane's captain, Robert Lindquist, reported their position and their ETA. Around four hours later, Lindquist made another position report to claim that he was only 50 miles south of Miami. Yet, Miami didn't receive this transmission. Rather, the transmissions were heard all the way over in New Orleans, Louisiana, (gasps) over 600 miles away from Miami. How could he have been confused? They relayed the information to Miami, though, and neither location were able to contact the plane back with a response to his position location. Oh, okay. The plane would never arrive. It completely disappeared with no traces. Investigations into the incident revealed no obvious cause for the disappearance, had it flown considerably off course, it could have run out of fuel and it would have crashed. Like, what if it was closer to Louisiana at that mm-hmm. point? What if he had done it? But, I mean, the time frame, how would he have gotten that far away? Because, I mean, Puerto Rico to Miami, he would have had to pass Miami considerably to be closer to. So, what what time did he leave uh, Puerto Rico? I don't have... Uh, because it, cause if we would have been able to see when he left Puerto Rico... And then when he made that announcement of how far away he was from not Miami, what, what you know what I mean? Because then, then we would have estimated him like, oh, that would have in theory been the distance to Miami, not to New Orleans. What we have is that his initial report when everything was fine was that he was 700 miles from Miami. And four hours later, four hours travel later, he said that he was 50 miles from Miami. That's what we have. Okay. Uh, I'm sure there is reports that have the specific times, but that was all well within... I mean, reason yeah i guess okay so what happened <laughs> <laughs> what 
We don't know where <laughs> Very it is. Good we question. don't we don't know where it crashed. Had it somehow gotten too far? And again, uh, no distress calls. Why did Miami not receive the signal? 600 miles. The signal was received 600 miles in a different place. Was there interference? Was a storm blocking them being received in Miami, but somehow Louisiana, they're like, oh, we got you. This is one of the first instances in recurring theme, particularly with planes, about possible time dilation and physical displacement. Meaning you start, you'll start to see as we go through some of these stories, there's this recurring issue with planes not seeming to be where they're supposed to be. Yeah. And the amount of time that has passed seems to be bizarre. So we're going to see that as a recurring trend as we go forward. Okay, let's do it. So now we have the biggest one. This is probably like the biggest story when it comes to planes in the Bermuda Triangle, and it's a doozy. Okay. On December 4th, 1945, the U.S. Navy was conducting a training mission. The mission comprised of five torpedo bombers. Those are small planes, kind of a little bit bigger than like a little fighter jet. Okay. Uh, They could hold up to three people. Four of these planes, those five planes on this mission, four Uh of them were stocked with three people and one only had two people. Okay. The mission was to take place east of Florida. So they were going to launch from Fort Lauderdale, which is on the east coast of Florida, and continue east. Okay. And they were going to fly to specific coordinates, drop their bombs. I don't know if they were live bombs or test bombs. Okay. They were going to drop their bombs. Then they were going to change their course heading north flying over Bermuda to get to another heading. And then once they were there, they were supposed to change course and head back to Fort Lauderdale. They are kind of making their own little triangle. Okay. It was a, so where was the first place that they were? I, I don't know if it matters. South of Bermuda. I've got a picture you can look okay. at. Ooh, okay. Um, so look at one, two, three, and it makes a triangle. So they're kind of... So they uh, launch at one. So the they, first one is like... Pretty much a straight arrow. Straight line east. And okay. then they in the random and then they'll drop the, the bombs. Yeah. Then they turn north, fly over that island, which is Bermuda. Okay. And then I mean yeah, fly no, over. No, not Bermuda, Bahama, I think. And then they fly to point three and then they report their coordinates and then they fly back home to one. Okay, so very straightforward. It's very a three leg journey. Easy for sure. Yeah. And there was actually even a second group of planes that was going to be doing that after them, and they were kind of getting ready at the same time. Oh, okay. So we'll be looking at this picture again. This picture will be posted on social media because it is important. I'm going to do my best to explain what's happening, but sometimes just a visual reference makes it a lot easier. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So the mission was to take place east of Florida, involve flying out to specific coordinates, dropping their bombs, turning north, flying over Grand Bahama Island until reaching another specified coordinate and then heading back east to return to Fort Lauderdale. Mm -hmm. All of the pilots involved had at least 300 flight hours logged, 60 of which were on the specific planes they were flying, which was called an Avenger. This demonstrates, oh, and and the flight leader, Charles Taylor, he had over 2,500 flight hours logged, most in that plane as well. This demonstrates that the pilots had considerable experience for this flight. You know, they weren't brand new newbies or anything like this. They knew how to fly, and and they were familiar with a lot of this stuff. Uh, Initial radio transmissions between Fort Lauderdale and the planes went smoothly, and the planes appeared to have successfully dropped all their bombs, completing the first leg of the mission, because they received a radio transmission from one of the planes requesting permission to drop its final bombs. Cool. Forty minutes later, Fort Lauderdale picked up a disturbing transmission from the planes. Mm. And it was, quote, and it was considered unidentified because they don't know who said this initially. Quote, I don't know where we are. 
We must have got lost after the last turn, end quote. Robert Cox, a flight leader from another group of planes that were preparing to undergo the same training mission, Mm -hmm. picked up these transmissions and responded, asking what the trouble was. The response was from the flight leader out on the mission, Taylor, Mm -hmm. and he said, quote, both of my compasses are out and I am trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am over land, but it's broken. I am sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down and I don't know how to go get to Fort Lauderdale, end quote. To which Cox replied that they should put the sun to the west and fly north up the coast until they reach Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Base also contacted the planes, telling them to activate their IFF transmitter so that they could triangulate the planes. Taylor said that the transmitter was active, but they were unable to pick up this signal. Taylor then radioed the base, quote, We are heading 030 degrees for 45 minutes. Then we'll fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico, end quote. This was a particularly disturbing message because that would put the planes considerably further away from where they should have been. Yeah. All these exercises were east of Florida, over the Bahamas, but the Florida Keys are south of Florida. Yeah. And are considerably west of the Bahamas. They shouldn't have it's been anywhere near the so Keys. They should terrifying. have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from the Keys. Taylor was under the impression that they were now located on the other side of Florida. He was worried he was in the Gulf of Mexico, like he had gotten to the other side of the state. So, if you look at this, yeah. the keys are at the bottom in yellow. Okay, That's yeah. the keys. He thought they were over here from there. Oh, man. That's where he said that they were. So then real quick, uh, just a real quick question then. The time frame that would have gotten him from from the Bahamas to the keys, did that make sense no, to them? Okay, that didn't. also did not he make sense. He should not have been there. Like, there's no way he should have been that far. Okay. Okay. Uh, scary. A few minutes after this transmission, another plane in the group radioed, quote, damn it, if we could just fly west, we could get home. Head west, damn it, end quote. Which would make sense if they were where they were supposed to be. Heading west, they would have hit Florida. Yeah. At this point, the planes had been flying far longer than they had ever intended. The sun had set. The weather had started to turn (sighs) for the worse, causing more issues with the radio contact. And to make matters worse... The planes were running out of fuel. Yeah. Nearly an hour later, Taylor radioed, quote, We didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again, end quote. Taylor was still convinced that they were on the other side of Florida. By this point, radio triangulation was able to locate the planes. They were not in the Gulf of Mexico. They were not in the Keys. They were very far north in the Atlantic, (gasps) considerably east of Florida. If you look... Look at the number four. That's where they were. Top Holy right four. Holy shit. Very far away. What is happening? Yeah. For someone that like, uh-huh. I mean. Had all that experience? Yeah. 15 minutes later, Taylor sent the last message received from the flight. Quote, all planes close up tight. We have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. End quote. No further communication be heard from Flight 19. Oh, my God. Here's what makes things worse, and you have to look back at the map again. Okay. Looking at it. A PBM-5 rescue plane was dispatched to find the planes. The aircraft carried 13 more crew. It was en route to the triangulated location where they believed Flight 19 would have gone into the water. Mm -hmm. A few minutes after it launched, it sent a routine radio communication. This would be the last communication with the rescue plane. 
Okay. <gasps> Neither Flight 19 or the rescue plane would ever be seen again. You can see on the map right there where it launched and where it was last heard from. Holy shit. Neither Flight 19 or the rescue plane would ever be heard from again. No wreckage or bodies were ever found. A tanker in the vicinity reported spotting a massive explosion at least 100 feet high nearby. But that explosion wasn't spotted until nearly two hours after the last communication with the rescue plane. An official investigation what? was launched. Okay. Yeah, an official investigation was launched, but the official statement was that uh, the cause was unknown. It is believed that when Taylor saw what he believed to be the Florida Keys, he may have seen smaller islands in the Bahamas and was mistaken. But this doesn't take into consideration. To I was going to say the Bahamas does have a lot of little islands. I Absolutely. Mean, there's a lot of broken up land there. But, I mean, he was an experienced pilot. I know. To think that he had gone all the way down to the Keys, that massive amount of travel that he had done, but he hadn't. And the fact that none of the planes had functioning compasses, they couldn't find where they were. That one trips me that's up. That's really bizarre. Yeah. That's straight up interference. And from what? Nothing. There was nothing there. And so storms did occur later, but this brings up, once again, this consideration of time dilation. What if he'd felt like he'd been flying considerably longer than he had? Mm -hmm. What if his positional, where where he thought he was aimed, and since he didn't have his compasses, like, what if so many things happened, it disoriented them, and they just thought they were in a completely different place? But there was another pilot, the one who said, fly east, damn it. I would fly west, damn it. He, like, knew. He said, I think this is where we are. Was Taylor just having an issue? That's what I was going to say. Why would he say you wouldn't go more west if you thought you were in the Keys? Yeah. And so some people question, why didn't some of the planes break off? And one of the theories posed is military mentality with authority. It's kind of like, listen to the guy who's in charge. And if he's experienced and he sounded experienced, then... But there's really no reason, like, if you... Let's say, you know, you you have your captain or whatever, and the guy that's in charge is telling you one thing, and you're even not sure either. Of course, you're going to trust the person with more experience. Even if I'm like, I'm not sure, but I also don't really know. So I'm not going to go off my dumbass low experience. I mean, they all had experience, but in comparison. But there's so much to this story that is just absolutely fascinating. When, When one plane goes missing, you're like... Okay, maybe they hit some crazy weather or maybe it hit the water or or a lot of different things can happen. But five planes, these were five planes out there all disappeared and they wouldn't spread out over a big enough area that no wreckage was found. But you can't just say, oh, one got hit by lightning or one got hit by a windstorm. You'd think that at least one of the five could have survived that. But that wasn't the case, especially since like. And then you have to add the amount of people that were there because three in each plane. Now you have more and, minds. Yes. Trying to- so it's three in every plane except one, which was two. So that's three times four, which is so it's 13 people. You would think that out of the 13 experienced pilots, someone would have been able to have a better grasp. I mean, together, I meant. They wish it, they should have been in communication with each other. Absolutely. And yeah. so that's already bizarre. And then what, like, it's like salt into the wound of the craziness is the rescue plane that launched also disappeared without a trace. Also disappeared, and then that explosion. What was that about? So the guy saw an explosion, and apparently the rescue plane had been known to have an issue with fuel vapors near an engine. Oh, like, But that whole model. But the explosion he saw was two hours after the radio communication. Yeah. Like, it, that just seems weird to me. That's a huge time discrepancy between, you know, the last time they heard from it. The last time they were able to hear from them. That's not yeah. necessarily saying that they weren't trying to communicate the whole time. If compasses were going out of whack and what's what's other receptors yeah. or, or uh, 
uh, wavelengths that are being inter- intercepted. And so the ship that saw the explosion went to investigate, and they just found burning fuel on the water, but they didn't find debris. They didn't find people. They didn't find anything. They mm. just found fire burning. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So that one's really crazy to me. That's a movie. Like, that's a good movie. And I, I want to see it, and I feel really bad for everyone who died because I this was a training I feel awful. Op. This is so terrible. Like, mm. if they can't make it past the Bermuda, I have, like, I don't know. I'm just terrified. Well, thankfully, as sad as this is, most of these cases are made problematic because everyone who went through the weird experience died. But plenty of people have had weird experiences and are still alive. Ooh. So this next story involves no deaths but weird shit. Okay. I'm and I okay thought this was the perfect way to end it because everything we've talked about is people who disappeared. So this is the last story for today. And it's about someone who went through something absolutely bizarre and lived to tell a tale. And apparently he wrote a book about it too. He nice. might be trying to live it up. Let's, I'm not, <laughs> but it's a good story either way. If it's still a good story, I'm, I might read it. On December 4th, once again, this is another December 4th. So we had two March 4th and now two December 4th. Maybe the triangle's pissed. It's like only threes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do four here. Yeah, we're Give not me a three. squares. So on December 4th, 1970, he was flying a small single propeller plane called a Beechcraft Bonanza. Now that just sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like something that's written on a surfboard. It I'm is. Just saying. Anyway, he was flying the Beechcraft Bonanza with his father and business partner. So three people on the plane. They flew from the Bahamas towards Florida. He was used to this flight. He had done it many times before, and it usually took about an hour and a half to complete the flight. Mm. Early in the flight, while still gaining altitude, he began to see strange dark clouds that seemed to grow exponentially in size. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's getting close to the clouds to get bigger. He said, no, they just looked like they were expanding, like to the naked eye in front of you. Very bizarre. He said he'd never seen it before or since. At around 11,500 feet, you know, I might have had, okay, so uh, sometimes when I'm typing, it was either <laughs> 1,500 feet or 11,500 feet. Either one is slightly acceptable. I'd say probably The comma could have been in the wrong place. 11,000, so. I think, maybe. Yeah. At around that altitude, he had no choice but to fly through one of these giant clouds that was expanding. Within the cloud, he experienced extremely dark conditions, near pitch black. Yet he didn't see any rain or experience any turbulence. Hmm. Not long after, he began to see strong bursts of light, which he described not looking anything like lightning at all. He claims the lights were all around him and continued to flash. After 30 minutes, he still hadn't passed through the cloud. Now, I'm going to stop telling the story for a second and go, I've been on many planes that have flown through many clouds. That's ridiculous. 30 minutes and you're still in the same cloud. Now, if you're going through like... We've been through like fog literally like the entire time. Yeah, but he was like, he could see he was within the giant big black cloud with all the lightning around. Yeah, that's creepy. I probably would have cried. No, nothing. (laughs) Was his... What was his... uh, His instruments were like like his oh we're getting there that's a good question your mind's in the right place at this point the cloud appeared to begin to close in on him and the electronics and navigation systems began to malfunction wildly gernon claims to have lost control his name's bruce gernon i don't know if i got that earlier but anyway i don't remember um gernon claims to have lost control of the plane at this point but the plane continued to fly without any issues Moments later, the plane burst out of the cloud, only to be engulfed in a bizarre gray haze that appeared silent and ominous. Mm. When Gernon contacted Control, they informed him that he was in Miami airspace. Gernon was shocked, as this was impossible. They had only been airborne for 40 or 50 minutes. 
and the flight should have taken him almost twice that amount of time. The speed limitations of the plane also make this timing an impossibility. The plane physically could not travel fast enough to have gotten him mm. from his his uh, origin to Miami in, I think it said 47 minutes. Yeah. He thought that the control was incorrect and maybe was detecting a different plane, except as soon as that gray bizarre haze faded away, they were indeed over Miami. Holy shit. Even more puzzling was that after he landed, he checked the fuel gauge and the usage, because it was full before it left, matched that he had only been in the air for about 47 minutes, not an hour and a half. Many consider this another example of temporal displacement and time dilation what did what happened to him what what was he going through now could he be lying of course he could be lying but the story is really good (laughs) i don't know if he's lying but if that cloud was really just bizarre it's like the cloud took him Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's like you know he got caught up in a in a tornado and it's like you're with me now buddy i don't care what you're doing but it's like a cloud that doesn't exist (laughs) no right yeah like a cloud that no one apparently fucking saw how does that even happen oh it's like the cloud you remember like in mario you saw those guys like riding the cloud (gasps) and they throw things at you yeah those little bastards yeah maybe he got (laughs) caught up in one of those and then they started throwing spiky animals at you. You're like, what the hell? Yeah, maybe that's that's literally what happened. I I think that's exactly what happened. Thank you. Because <laughs> this happened in, what, 1970 was it? Let me check the date. Yeah, 1970. So maybe the people who invented Mario read this and they're like, oh, we can put that in the game. Yeah, it's like same. Bermuda Triangle. So those are all the incidences that I have for today. There are a lot of other incidents, and I will bring them up in future Tropical Terrors. But those, I think, were the most compelling ones for the time. So let's talk a little bit about explanations, criticisms, and whatnot, but very briefly. Yeah, of course. I kind of have an obsession with the Bermuda Triangle, and I kind of like (laughs) the fantasy of letting it be creepy. But there's a few things we should talk about. One thing that is important to note is that despite a large number of accidents that do occur in the Bermuda Triangle, it isn't actually statistically different than other bodies of water in terms of the fact that the Bermuda Triangle is actually one of the most heavily trafficked bodies or areas in the world. So it, There's yeah. so many things there. So the idea is... Yes, there's a lot of things that happen there, but it's because there's so much more traffic that when you account for the amount of traffic for the amount of incidences, it actually becomes statistically similar to less traveled bodies of water and their number of incidences. And there's not, like, by any means a discrepancy of weird things. Exactly. It should also be noted that due to the unique climate and geography of the area, it is prone to bizarre natural occurrences and terrible weather. Almost every tropical storm and hurricane passes through the Bermuda Triangle. It mm-hmm. just happens. Yeah. And I have heard that. I know it has terrible weather. I mean, absolutely. That entire region, we all I mean, know that. It's a paradise that also gets freaking weird. You can't have all that good without some bad, I right? guess. Instances of weird tornadoes made up of water, are, which are called water spouts, are regularly reported in the area, as well as weird phenomena like ball lightning that are so regularly used to explain UFOs in in mainland areas have been documented and filmed to occur in the Bermuda Triangle. I think I've seen that. I think I have seen a video of that. Yeah. Yeah. And there is proof that compasses do experience issues in the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. uh, Where they sometimes have difficulty because it's, uh, I remember specifically reading where it had to do with Magnetic North and physical actual north kind Mm -hmm. of line up there so weird things start to happen yeah so we do know that this actually does occur 
so with the uh i mean i don't know i think we've all felt this where there's like a really heavy thunderstorm and right before you feel the energy you can feel it like all over your skin and almost stingly. like you're almost like you're like uh hairs raised yeah, yeah and you're like i'm gonna get hit so you start like zigzagging or maybe just me as a kid but like <laughs> my well, point is is that uh you do feel a, a strange energy with absolutely. a lot of electricity so maybe um i think it's stronger there's something there yeah i experience it more strongly whenever i'm in humid climates than i do here oh for sure um, when i w- whenever i spent because i sp- used to spend like almost every summer in wisconsin storms were very different over there and you could feel the energy you could be in your house and you could still feel the energy but also when it was going to be a crazy storm the sky turned kind of green, and that never happens. In I don't New think Mexico. I've ever kind of seen that. I've seen uh, strange colors in the sky when we went to Mexico, and mm-hmm. uh, where my dad grew up, there would be some vicious lightning storms for sure. I mean, they were hitting the ground like every second. It felt like, and the flashes were so close by, like yeah. right next to you, that you know you see all white for a second and, yeah. and all that stuff. So it, I mean, it's terrifying, but at the same time, you know, you know, it's fine. Well, when I was when I was real young in and I was in Madison, a tornado touched down, and my family we had we were at a restaurant. We had to go into the restaurant's basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone did. They funneled everyone in because the tornado touched down. But I do remember as a kid, I was looking up at the sky and I remember noting it looks really green. And it wasn't until years later I w- I brought it up to my mom and she's like, yeah, that can happen during crazy storms like that. And so I guess I mean for us it might be just strange things, but. It doesn't explain it still for people who are experienced in that area when they're like, I've never seen this before. Well, that's not normal because we've seen, I think you and I have probably seen just whatever craziness could occur here in our city. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? We're like, what's that? Who knows? You know what I mean? But like, (laughs) but it happens every once in a while. It's fine. And that would be the same in somewhere tropical. You're like, yeah, there's lots of lightning storms. Sometimes the sky is green. Sometimes it's black. Sometimes it's gray. Sometimes it's whatever. But the things that they talk about and they're like, that's never happened, and there's no reason for it. And a lot of these were experienced ship captains, crewmates, pilots. Like, this isn't their first time flying. And so if it's weird to them, that's worth taking note of. And it shouldn't be dismissed oh, yeah. rudely. I, I mean, it, it definitely needs to be taken seriously in comparison to someone like me who would have been there, yeah. who has never seen a storm in the Atlantic or in any area yeah. of that region. Well, so like, I would have been terrified. I mean, like, one of the things that I wrote here was that... It's going to be easy for a lot of people with what I just said about it's not statistically significant that there's just so much traffic through the area. That's why there's so many instances. But even though that's easy to write off, what makes them intriguing isn't that there's so many accidents. It's that so many of the accidents are so bizarre, yeah, unexplainable, or happen without a trace. They were kind of like everyone's obsession with the Malaysia flight. I can't remember the... The, the number. The number. But that one disappeared. And you had people all over the world posing their theories. Like, you had experts around the world trying to find out where this plane was. Yeah. That's a... I mean, it didn't happen in the Bermuda Triangle. It was a different part of the world. <laughs> yeah. But that is the kind of things that were happening in the Bermuda Triangle. And so the Bermuda Triangle may not have more per capita... I don't think per capita is the right way to use it. But I think you I guys think understand I what, what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um but all the occurrences that I read about are so bizarre. And that's what I love about the Bermuda Triangle, because when you read it, you're like, what happened? But other things to mention about it is that the whole Bermuda Triangle region, it has very bizarre geology, geography, terrain. Yeah. Um, 
it has areas with built up reefs and sandbars that make certain areas so shallow ships can crash on them at any point. But then just around those areas are some of the deepest points in the ocean. So due to this, it is so possible that so many ships and planes can hit something and then sink to the deepest parts of the ocean. But like, how right would planes after. hit something? Well, no, but if a plane goes down, it's not going to like sink eight feet and just be like on a reef. It could sink and then go thousands of feet. Oh, I see water. what you're saying. Yeah. So due to this, it's possible that many planes and ships will never be found. And without being able to find them, it becomes harder to find out what actually happened to it. You don't can't get yeah. a flight recorder, black box, anything like that. Some of these are actually found, later or not. Mm-hmm. In October 2015, the SS El Faro, which was a massive cargo ship, went missing in the Bermuda Triangle. What day in October? I don't remember. Oh. Um, after, tra- um, after discovering some debris that they thought may have been from the Faro, they sent a ship into the depths, like a submersible, into the depths to find it. And it was found. Wow. 15,000 feet <gasps> underwater. 4,600 meters, where the air pressure is ridiculous. And yeah. despite that, they still couldn't find the the ship recorder to find out what may have happened to it. Oh, weird. Yeah. So one interesting thing, just to leave it off, because I do like I do like when scientists try to pose smart explanations. Not just the, oh, yeah, you saw Venus. But I mean, like, the real <laughs> explanations where I'm like, okay, this is intriguing. Yeah, of course. Is that one issue that could actually be happening in the region is called methane hydrates. Mm-hmm. Research and experiments, uh, a lot of them coming out of Australia, different region, but they, they study the stuff, suggest that large bubbles of methane hydrates released by eruptions along the continental shelves way deep in the water actually have a disturbing reaction to the water. Mm. They can cause the water to froth up and lose its standard level of buoyancy, causing otherwise perfectly good ships to fail and sink incredibly rapidly and violently. This is made particularly compelling because not only do these methane hydrate bubbles actually exist, we've proven that these do exist. Whether or not they're existing in that region, I don't know, but we do know they exist uh, out to sea. But many of the cases reported of issues with boats, of situations where people survived and didn't survive, and they call in SOSs and, and whatnot, is that they notice that the water around them changes rapidly, often turning white or frothy and it looks bizarre. Okay. And so all of a sudden that just comes an interesting thing is like, what if all of a sudden you have these weird eruptions under the ocean and you have these giant gas holes that are going and just sucking down like little itty bitty quicksands. Yeah. And then uh, taking out down. a boat real quick that it, uh, otherwise good boat. Now this doesn't explain boats that are found abandoned. I was about to say, this that'd be abandoned planes, ones. But all of a sudden it goes on to explain maybe some of the weird stuff that's Okay. Happened. This might be really stupid because I don't know much about this stuff, I guess, but could there be enough like eruptions of this methane gas whatever into the sky that could disrupt instruments like if there's like a like, I don't or, know. or not not just that gas but like any other you know it's it's actually stuff coming it's, out of the ocean that's a really good question but the thing is that involves science that i'm already very weak <laughs> on the science explaining the initial thing yeah and another thing that should be mentioned, I can't remember the name of the organization. I don't think it was the Geological Survey, but they have stated that they have not recorded any large gas emissions in the Bermuda Triangle region. Oh, well. That doesn't mean anything because they might not actually be like testing it specifically. I don't know what their methods are testing. How frequently? I mean. This is when the science gets way beyond what I know. Oh, yeah. And so I'm interested and I want to know more. 
but there was so much here. I could only, I, I wanted to just tell you guys the stories that get me excited like a little kid again about, oh my the God, Bermuda. what happened. Yay. So I hope all of you that are listening, I'm sorry that it was just me telling crazy stories. What are you talking about? This is like my favorite. I get to sit, listen to stories and drink. This is this is a dream come true. And I didn't have to do research this week. It's the best. And <laughs> and out of, out of a desire for just pure love and entertainment for the subject, I withheld all my skepticism in instead of deciding to criticize and analyze i said let's just tell the stories let's and just let have them fun be. so yeah. anyway uh that is the bermuda triangle for this massive installment of tropical tears and full disclosure i may do other bermuda triangle stories in the future but they'll probably be single stories at the end as opposed to a big thing yeah like yeah you said that and that it could be just your like super mini tropical terror thing when, when i talked to lily uh a couple weeks ago about doing this she said well you better do it right I was like I think I can do a whole episode on this because there's just so much and she's like you better do it right because I want to do the Bermuda Triangle I was like no <laughs> this is tropical it's all me this was like a long time ago and I was always thinking like maybe I can do the Bermuda Triangle because it's such a it's such a big thing I have I have a few on my list and unfortunately half that list falls into your category which I'm okay with now now that you've done this I'm like heck yeah I can sit here and listen to it it's fine so I was very nervous and I was like, I have to make her happy. But also, <laughs> also like, like, like we've said plenty of times before, me and Lily, we really like the show Unsolved, uh, oh, Supernatural yeah. Unsolved. Yeah. I hate that it's related to BuzzFeed because BuzzFeed's like the worst thing in the world to me. Sure. But, um, Brian Bergera and Shane. I mean, they have their own, uh, yeah, they do their own stuff outside, YouTube. which is great. And yeah, they I, have The Watcher, which I think is their company. Yeah. And then they have like a series of, of shows on that yeah. channel. So, I mean, they, you can follow them without Busby. It's fine. But they're amazing and they do great stuff. And they did a short episode on the Bermuda Triangle. And I listened to it and there was fun banter and everything. And I was like, well, I like this. I have to do better because. <laughs> I must win. Well, no, our episodes aren't 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, right. No, and, they did have short episodes. You're right. And I was like, he only covered a couple things. He talked about some of the things I talked about, but. He also spent time talking about the Atlantis theory, which I was like, I'm not touching. I don't that. think I've seen that. I, we'll watch I it. We'll don't... watch it together now, because now that you've I've told you these stories, you'll be like, oh, I heard this one. <laughs> I remember. I just I feel like I can't wait to see or hear Shane's reaction to the Atlantis theory. <laughs> it's just going to be magical. <laughs> so coming up. We're going to try. Uh, we are going to try to do another game episode. Yay! So look forward to it. With any luck, it's next episode, but otherwise, very soon after it, we got the wheel spinning. We got our drinking we games coming. We have everything. I think we're going to be really prepared this time, I promise. And then I think we need to post the rules. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll do a story thing on Instagram just to like prepare people. And then on the day that we release the episode, we'll definitely post the rules again, mm-hmm. so that way you guys can enjoy. Maybe we can even post a video of the wheel spinning so that you guys can experience the magic. <laughs> the amazingness that it is the wheel. Yeah, I don't know if we mentioned on the episode last time, but when our when our buddy Joe came over, like the first thing he said when he came, he's like, show me the wheel. Yeah, he, <laughs> I do remember you saying that. So maybe we'll post a video so people can see the wheel. Yeah, um, it's famous now. But that's what I got for you. I love it. Thank you so much, Chase. I am so excited that I got to sit around and do nothing and drink beer. And I'll get one to soon. Fun stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, the first two episodes you sat back and did nothing. We'll have some more where you do where you do big topics because you've got you've amazing stories. I have a lot of big ones coming up for sure. Um, anyway, 
I'm really happy all of you guys got to join us today. And if you guys want to get in contact with us, then feel free to hit us up on social media. Also, if you have suggestions, feel free to contact us as well through those means. We really appreciate that kind of stuff. And of course, if you are listening to us on a day in which you happen to imbibe a little too much the day before, or it's the end of your work week and you have quite the hangover, then remember that the best cure for a hangover is fear. Bye.